Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers, using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like School districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice? curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow, and I am so happy you're here. Today, we're going to hop back into our discussion about inclusion. I promised that a couple of weeks ago, and then we took a break, a very well-needed break here in the Barlow household. And then we did our 150th episode, which was really crazy and fun. I can't believe that we have recorded that many episodes. And I hope you liked it. And so now we are back to our discussion on inclusion. Before we talk about that, though, I have like a a perfectly imperfect relatable moment. And it's funny because I was talking to a friend that's an advocate that sometimes does a little bit of work for me. We were talking about a case and I was like, I am so sorry. I have just had like the weirdest summer. And after I told her about it, she was like, you need to tell people about this stuff. Not because, you know, like you need sympathy or empathy or anything else yourself, but because so many people think that, you know, they must be the only person experiencing this stuff. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's so true. And that is like what we are here for in the Ashley Barlow Company community. We are here to relate to one another and to and to support one another. And certainly I experience so much of this, you know, kind of juggling that we do. And so I did think, you know, maybe I'll just share with you the stuff that I shared with Sarah the other day. So I was talking to Sarah Plattenberg, who's been an expert or an interviewee here on the podcast. I think she was my first guest, actually. And so, okay, so I don't even know when, like beginning of July-ish, we, let's see, what happened first? So I started feeling bad. The wildfire smoke really affected us. And so I started feeling bad. I think I did a couple of podcast episodes where I was like, I'm sorry for my voice. There was one day that I sat with a washcloth on my desk because my nose was just like watery. And so I was feeling really bad and thinking, gosh, it's a smoke. I took like four COVID tests that week because I was going to chaperone a swim meet and I didn't want to get any of the swimmers sick. Then, of course, the next week I left for a swim meet. So I think I worked Monday, Tuesday, maybe. I know I took an appointment that week from the hallway of the natatorium because I was like running in a thousand different directions. And then, um, goodness, at the end of the swim meet, something really tragic happened. A um, One of the athletes um, had a really crazy incident happen and the kids witnessed some really traumatic stuff, a medical event. It turns out it looks like the child is going to make a full recovery, but it was really, 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 really scary. So that was a crazy week. And then we came home and we could like literally see the smoke on our way down the expressway. So I was like, oh, it's going to be another week of smoke. And sure enough, we all started to feel sick, which we thought was just the smoke until we got an email from the team saying somebody had COVID. And so then on Tuesday of that week, Griffin tested positive for COVID. I offered the babysitter the choice and she left because of some vulnerability in her family. And then 
so I, I didn't have a babysitter from like, let's say, I think Tuesday to Friday of that week. Then the next week, yay, back to babysitter, back to normal. Maybe I can work a full week. My, I think I worked Monday, Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, my husband tested positive for COVID. My best friend and her daughter came down for the Pink concert. We got to the Pink concert. Griffin said he didn't feel well. Griffin, oh, by the way, Griffin had been in a car that basically they caught on fire. It didn't actually catch on fire, but like that just started steaming and smelled terrible and stopped working. And so I had to go rescue him and his friend and like help navigate that during the day. And that was on the way home from Chipotle. And it turns out Chipotle gave him terrible food poisoning. And so he was sick all night. And then the next day we ended up having to go to the emergency room because he got like really, really dehydrated. And then he missed his summer club championship swim meet, which was at our pool, which stunk. So then I had to like scramble and get somebody to cover all of my shifts that I was supposed to be the announcer, blah, blah, blah. And then we, and actually we thought we could maybe even like squeeze by and go there the Friday of the weekend. Thank goodness we didn't. One of his friends passed out from the heat. And then at four o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning, we went to California. <laughs> so that has been the last like, and we were in California for for two weeks. So if you wonder why did I say, you know what, I can't record a podcast episode or why has she had a ponytail all summer long? Or I don't even think I've brushed my hair yet today. I'm, I'm reading documents, I'm tutoring. I have two tutoring appointments and the rest of the day I'm reading exhibits for a um, trial. So, oh, and Today is the fourth day of school and I have Griffin home with white dots on his throat that is not strep throat. Don't you love it when you take them for an antibiotic and they say, oh, it's viral. And you're like, cheers. So stop for a drink of coffee. And here we go. Here we go back into the school year. Hopefully we get everybody in school. We caregivers get a break, whether that means that you get to like organize your garage or you get to read the book or you get to go sit at the pool by yourself, or you get to work uninterrupted, or you get to take a little trip, whatever it is, cheers to the structure and the routine and the excitement of the new school year. And I know for you know a large portion of our country that you aren't back in school yet, and you probably get really annoyed at all the back to school stuff when you're like, we don't go back till after Labor Day. So bear with us, <laughs> bear with our excitement and frenzy of back to school. So today I want to talk about how we as parents can collaborate with schools specifically about inclusion, but I'm talking like practical strategies. I'm talking about ways that we can, you know, help to get back to school and, you know, like promote inclusion throughout the year. A lot of times I'm the kind of attorney that says sometimes we need to chip away at inclusion. You know, do I believe that many, many, many children are in self-contained or more restrictive settings than they need to be? Absolutely. That is 100% my belief. But I also think that it is really hard and takes a very long time to get a good verdict at a due process hearing. And so I am of the opinion that it might be fruitful. And then a lot of times it is fruitful to chip away at inclusion in order to, you know, kind of really succeed at an inclusive environment. And I have found over the years that there are many ways that parents can collaborate or things that parents can do in order to participate in a more inclusive environment for their kids. 
So number one is obviously to maintain really open communication, to talk to administrators, to talk to teachers, to go to those parent-teacher conferences, to, to schedule meetings, to go to meetings, um, to go to events, stay informed about your child's progress, your child's IEP. You know, when I talk about special education, I always say parents need to be very familiar with and communicate about their child's actual IEP progress, the different teaching methodologies to teach your child, special education law, and then the, the negotiation strategies to get what you think your child needs and deserves. So I think that regular communication about those things and participation is only going to help you because, you know, particularly for our kids that can't communicate their experiences, that can't communicate their interest and their values, it's it's really hard. So that's number one, is to stay informed about school activities, child progress, etc. Number two is to get involved. Lots of schools have PTOs or PTAs or some kind of similar parent group. Some schools have parent groups that are specialized for children with disabilities, for children that are on 504s and IEPs in their district. If that is the case in your district, check it out, see what you think. My district does not have one that's formal. We have one that's informal that a friend of mine kind of put together. And what I love about it is you get to kind of network to see like, what did the district, how did the district handle a disciplinary matter or a behavior matter or a scheduling matter or, you know, like one of the questions was about a speech therapist that was only contracted for two days a week. And what if you need speech three days a week? And so somebody had navigated that already and could talk to everybody about how they navigated it and what the interests of the district were and that kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, sometimes those things turn into complete and utter bitch fests, as you know, we cuss here. And that's not for me. <laughs> but to date, ours has been really helpful. The other thing about PTAs and PTOs and parent organizations and volunteering is you really get a good insight into teacher personalities, the inner workings of the school, any kind of like inside scoop into the way that the school works. So I used to do, when my kids were in elementary school, I was in charge of this craft fair that happened at our um, school-wide festival. And oh my gosh, um, you know, being up there and experiencing like where to go and the, and the politics of where to store things or who's doing what, that all really gave me good insight that could help me to get um, better access for Jack. So getting involved is um, super duper helpful. When I talked about like things that I think that you should know, my third tip here is to advocate for inclusive policies, inclusive strategies, inclusive teaching methodologies, inclusive ideals for your school. So maybe that is um, advocating for anti-bullying measures. Maybe it is advocating for accessibility in your facilities, you know, whether we're talking about cuts in sidewalks, or we're talking about elevators, or we're talking about playground facilities, or we're talking about webs, um, but accessible facilities. Um, and certainly advocating for a diverse representation in your curriculum. So that might be, you know, researching a lot about universal design or about other inclusive um, teaching methodologies, and then asking that they be implemented. Now, these are not things that we do one time. 
right? Like we don't go into a school and say, hey, I think we need an accessible playground. No, these are conversations that we start. These are committees that we form. These are big, humongous things. We might need to hire an expert and have an expert come in and do a PD or professional development or, you know, something like that. So, but we're doing these things and we're starting the discussions. So that's not just like a check mark kind of a thing. That is something that would be ongoing. Another thing that my district has gotten really good at is celebrating differences. So one of the things that my kids elementary school does is a cultural celebration. And in the cultural celebration, ours is called a, I think it's called a taste of fill in the blank elementary school. So a, a, a taste of, you know, Jones Elementary or whatever it's called. And the purpose of that is for families that come from different nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, different backgrounds to be able to share their background through food. And what's really neat is the school recently has asked that every table do some kind of activity also to to celebrate their culture. So there have been crafts, there have been little worksheets, there's been videos, there's been all kinds of different ways to immerse yourself in different cultures, but it's all on one night. And especially if these things are done at the beginning of the school year, it really not only heightens awareness, but can really lead to true belonging, true appreciation, and a true understanding of the need to celebrate these different cultural celebrations. I am of the opinion that when we notice differences, whether those differences have to do with culture or race or ethnicity or gender or gender identity or ability and disability, when we notice any difference, it could be hair color. Remember that Oprah episode from probably the 80s or 90s, and and it was eye color. When we notice this, we are a, um, a community that is going to create a sense of belonging. And so much of inclusion is about the sense of belonging. Once we get the people that are involved in inclusive education or in education to want to create to all people with all different interests and values and abilities and understandings, then we're going to, it's going to come naturally. So sure, we can teach universal design, but we have to get the people on board. And I'm of the belief that doing these kinds of celebrations and these kinds of activities um, will promote that um, kind of desire to buy in to creating a sense of belonging for all students and all people. So I think that's another way to celebrate. I think we're on number five now. And that is for kind of similarly to promote acceptance and not only acceptance, but a true empathy, a true love, a true kindness. There are different campaigns across the, the disability and other communities where there are days of celebration. So there is a day that used to be a day to stop the use of the R word. I think now it is called Inclusion Day. There, We have an inclusion club and the inclusion club sets up something at the lunch table and you can come over and you can sign a pledge to not say the R word and to um, utilize inclusive practices. They always staff that table at lunchtime with kids that have disabilities and with peer tutors, which our school has pretty 
a, a really great established practice of, of implementing peer tutors in class. And they also do the morning announcements. Last year, it kind of coincided that week with World Down Syndrome Day. So they did a Wear Crazy Socks promotion and they actually put the kids that wore crazy socks, they put them so that their bodies spelled out 321. You know how like you can put people, like how a high school band does, like, you know, they'll be the mascot and then they'll be the logo and that kind of stuff. So they spelled out 321 with their little bodies and bleachers and they were all holding up their socks. It was cute. Again, we are kind of creating this awareness and for a lot of people, they will go beyond the awareness and they will start to develop empathy. They will start to develop kindness and um, a true kind of need to help to advocate and to help to be a part of the change. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get those people to not only kind of accept our students that need to be included, but to actually befriend them and then to become um, advocates and part of that natural support system for them. I cannot tell you how many of my clients say, yeah, I want a more inclusive IEP and do not do the following things. They do not create inclusive opportunities for their children outside of school. I think it is extremely difficult to make a practical argument for inclusion if your kid does not succeed in inclusive environments outside of school. That means, yes, you have to involve them in extracurricular sports. That means, yes, you have to include them in inclusive educational opportunities, whether that's at church or it's an art class or it's some other kind of class. You have to create that because at some point we're going to have to prove, yes, they can do it. Yes, they benefit from it. Yes, other adults can do it. You can do it, people. <laughs> Sometimes we have to create these examples. So inclusive play dates, inclusive activities, inclusive sports. Create them if they don't exist. Have your children with disabilities participate with children that do not have disabilities outside of school. I don't mean exclusively. Yes, I believe that it is also important, particularly for our people that have developmental disabilities, to do things with their similarly abled peers and with people with similar diagnoses so that they really understand their own diagnosis and they feel community and that sort of thing. Community is very important to us humans. But I think it is very important, particularly if you are making an inclusion argument, to encourage your child to invite friends of different abilities, different backgrounds, etc., for playdates to hang out, to participate in those sports and those activities that are outside of your school. Another thing that we can do with school that when I when I wrote that one down, I started thinking about, yeah, and then you tell the school, like, this is what we do. But then in addition to that, when we do those things, we also learn so much. We learn resources, right? Because, you know, a parent's going to say, oh, my, my sister-in-law is a special education teacher. Do you know about this book? Have you watched this movie? Do you know about, like, I've got a, a friend that knows everything there is to know about universal design. And so when we have those opportunities when we are engaging with parents and experts and coaches and teachers that are outside of our school community that have children with and without disabilities but are interested in 
interacting with our children, we learn about those things. Well, we can share those resources with our school, and it's not awkward if you, if you are communicating regularly. If you aren't communicating regularly and you're like, hey, you should watch this documentary, the teachers all feel totally defensive. Like, why is she saying I should watch this documentary? But if you're sending those Sunday emails, if you're sending that back to school email, if you're communicating regularly about progress and outside therapies and outside tutoring and whatnot, and you share those resources and you say, hey, this is what we've got, you know, this is something that I, that I found from a friend, blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh, it's not awkward and it can be super duper helpful. So share those resources that you get at other places. The last two are kind of like really, really specific nuanced things. One is bullying. I think it is really, really common for there to be kind of like underlying bullying. And this is most often present in schools that just have self-contained classrooms with names and they assume that if you have Down syndrome or you have autism, you go here. If you have dyslexia, you have this teacher and you get this many minutes. Those schools that think that there's like a one size fits all for different disabilities or dis different disability categories, I see bullying a lot. And I don't necessarily mean like, you know, bullying, like outward, bullying. Of course that happens too. But there are ways that children are bullying that are really kind of underground, really kind of secretive, really kind of like psychologically scary. And I don't think schools see it because they don't see that their district is promoting the bullying with their practices or is setting up the bullying to happen with their practices. So I had a situation last year where everything that the professional, the administrator that was trying to help me to fix a situation, everything she said, it came from all of these preconceptions about the child's diagnosis, about the impact of his diagnosis, about behaviors, about all of these things, and they were impacting every everything, but they all came from preconceptions. None of these ideas or conclusions came from my client's actual profile. And when I set up the conversation to say, hey, like, this is what the students are doing, and this is what you just said. And here's another example of what the students are doing and what you just said. And I gave like seven, eight, nine examples of it. This administrator was like so humble and so grateful that I pointed it out and really kind of started to understand that their preconceptions were affecting the rest of the school. So it was trickling from the administration down. And so in that case, we immediately, I said, okay, well, step one, let's get PBIS in the school. Let's get those positive behavior intervention systems set up in the school. We got them set up as a leader in me school, which really made a big difference. The teachers were really grateful that teachers had been asking for it, frankly. 
and we and we really started to make some progress, right? And so I think addressing bullying is super duper helpful and important. And the other thing is to, you know, sometimes think about whether or not you can collaborate to create big events. Now, you're going to say, Ashley, I don't think you're a big event type of a person. And that is true. But if you've got a district where you just really need to chip away at it, it's archaic, they aren't doing it, you're in the middle of the country, you're in a rural area, and they just can't even like fathom the idea of educating a child with autism or Down syndrome or CP, a child that utilizes a wheelchair for mobility, they just can't even like fathom doing that. Then I think I might suggest that you organize some kind of event, an event that celebrates diversity, celebrates kindness, celebrates understanding, some kind of awareness week, maybe guest speakers, that you get a group together and say, hey, can we collaborate to create some events? Maybe it's parent workshops, maybe it's professional development for teachers, maybe it's school-wide, something or another. But, you know, if if you can't like get it down to the micro level, to the human level, maybe you need to see if you can get somebody to buy in at the district level. The one kind of caveat that I'll give you, and this is a big caveat and it and it's sticky and so you know it could be its own podcast I'm sure it is its own podcast um, but it could certainly be its own episode and that is you have to be really careful because that could be seen as a DEI initiative it probably is a DEI initiative but of course anytime anybody says anything about diversity equity or inclusion at school it is going to have major major backlash so that's just a very divisive topic right now And so you have to be very intentional about the way that you're asking for things, about the curriculum that you suggest for these things, and be prepared, honestly, for any questions or criticism, knowing that a lot of it is not going to be founded in reasonable discussion. And by reasonable discussion, I mean discussion that is intended to come to an understanding. Like a lot of people just want to fight when they hear diversity or equity or inclusion, and they don't really intend to come to an understanding. So the best way to do that is to understand that it's that there's potential for it to create your programming in order to ensure that you are meeting the needs of everyone in your district and to ensure that your language that promotes these programs and workshops, professional development, et cetera, is actually matches what you intend to teach, that you don't use these keywords that are going to incite incite the people. (laughs) I hope that that is helpful. So those are some tips that I think we parents can do in order to promote inclusion in our communities and promote inclusion for our individual students. It seems overwhelming, and I will tell you it is overwhelming, but what we have to do is we have to chip away at it in order to get to the people. Don't forget, if there's one thing you've learned from this, it is that this is people, it's relational. We have to get people to buy in, and in order to get buy in, I think that we need to tackle one or two of these a year, even if it feels intimidating. So, I will see you next week, same time, same place. I hope your kids are healthy. I hope you have a great start to the school year whenever it is, and we'll be back together in a week.